Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who have transformed their lives since 2016 and are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, and generally stepping outside of their comfort zones. I hope their stories will inspire you to take action on your own. Head on over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. On this episode, I have a conversation with Hollywood writer and producer Stacey Kramer, who since 2016 has become a tireless fundraiser for Democratic candidates and grassroots groups. Stacey talks about how to make Democratic fundraisers more democratic, how her creative skills as a writer and her nudgy skills as a producer have benefited her, and why making people feel included and engaged in the process is just as important as raising money. Listen for Stacy's ideas on how to host successful fundraisers and creative ways to make them fun on Zoom. So here is my conversation with Stacy Kramer. Stacy Kramer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nancy. Happy to be here. So let's start with your world pre-Trump or pre-Trump's election. What were you doing then? I was a screenwriter, a TV writer, and a novelist. I had just written a YA book and a movie that I had just recently finished. I was sort of blithely going along, thinking that the world was all taken care of because Obama was (laughs) in power and Hillary would soon be taking over from him. And, you know, my life was just going to go along as it was. November of 2016, I hit like a brick wall. It just came at me suddenly. I was not expecting it. Sure, I should have read more polls, but most of the polls were going our way. And I was completely sideswiped by it and really taken down for a couple of days. Like I just couldn't get out of bed. And when I did, I took long walks listening to Hamilton largely (laughs) and weeping and finding people like on the subway, on the street who are also weeping, hugging people. I was in mourning, really. Yeah, I remember that well. It was the first time also for me, because I've always been part of like what's called Women's Action Coalition, which then became various other groups of women's groups fighting again for the ERA, which is sort of insane. When you watch Mrs. America and you realize, oh my God, we're still fighting for this shit 50 years later. So I had been involved on and off. And I lived in LA for 12 years and I'd been involved in a lot of groups there, but nothing in the way of deep activism. It was all kind of Saturday afternoon activism in a way. So this really shook me to my core and it was galvanizing in a way I don't think I've ever been galvanized. And what exactly were you galvanized to do? Well, at first I was galvanized to learn more how this might've happened, what was happening to the country, what was going on in States, which was an incredibly important lesson about the fact that we had while Obama was in power and we were all thrilled thinking things were going along swimmingly, Republicans were working, you know, beneath the surface to basically undermine every single state. So it was a really good lesson. And like, this has been an illusion. What you thought was going well was not actually going as well as you thought. And it's going to take every single one of us doing something. Because people like me were largely to blame. We were sitting back, we were assuming everything was going well, we were giving money where we were told. But I wasn't active. I wasn't doing anything. Keeping democracy afloat takes every single one of us. It was eye-opening to me. And it was like, okay, this is going to be a commitment. And if you want things to change, you're going to have to commit yourself to this. And it means taking time out of work, taking time out of family, taking time out of socializing, all the things that I hadn't really wanted to do. I was too lazy previously. So it added, you know, I had three kids. I had a full-time job, but 
like everybody else, it was too much work for me. And I realized, okay, if it doesn't start with me doing it, then I become like everybody else, which is through benign neglect, these things happen. What we started out doing is I got together with a group of friends, all of whom were in mourning as well. And we had a very depressing <laughs> come to Jesus moment at my brownstone in Brooklyn Heights, where maybe, oh God, we all sent out feelers. And we ended up with like 75 people in my house, I think. We'd hoped to get like 20, but people came in droves. And as happens with a group of liberals who are diverse, we all had very different ideas about what we could do to, <laughs> to change things. And we came up on a few ideas, which is to obviously help in a number of red states to figure out which groups needed help. And so we sort of all kind of got names and numbers and we called various groups. Some of them were just forming part of Indivisible. And basically after a couple weeks of work, what we discovered was these groups really don't want us coming <laughs> Indiana to Peoria. They didn't want us like showing up in their town as New Yorkers and Los Angelinos and helping out. What they really needed was money and resources. And unfortunately, as much as I wanted to have everybody get active and they wanted to get active, that just wasn't what these groups needed. So what we decided to do was to try to help these groups financially. And through doing that, we started helping some smaller state ledge groups that we could raise money for because we realized that the money helping those groups, it didn't have to be large amounts of money, but small amounts of money could be significant. So we started doing that, that, and I was doing that with about sort of 10 people in New York, largely. And that kind of led to candidates getting in touch with us and asking for help. These were candidates trying to flip red seats to blue. This was obviously before 2018 midterms, where we knew that there was a possibility of a blue wave, where we knew that the house could flip, or rather hoped that the house could flip with work. And we were just sort of hearing that like these state ledges could flip, city councils could flip, this could be meaningful, start from the ground up. And then candidates in Cincinnati and Toledo and parts of South Dakota and Iowa started to call and reach out, Abby Finkenauer, and then people from even Staten Island, Max Rose and Connor Lamb. And we would basically eventually sort of started helping these various candidates. And it then, I was at that time, as I was starting to do this, we had segued from realizing that we we're not going to do a ton of activism because it wasn't what was needed at the moment. I mean, sure, we all participated in the Women's March and there were various protests and demonstrations that we became part of, but it just didn't seem like that was enough, nor was it having its impact. And money, unfortunately, seemed like the best thing we could do. So as we rolled into 2017, we became a little more organized. So we started to form a group called Blue Republic. And we basically took a lot of these people that had been at this original fundraiser, and we asked them to co-host various events. So it was very disorganized, I mind that. But we basically would do an event a month starting in 2017, as we kind of met different candidates, and we would have different people co-host. So we would work with groups of 10 to 15 co-hosts. The other thing we did is we looked at the way people had been fundraising in New York City and the way Democrats in particular had been fundraising in New York City, which was sort of all I had to look at because I wasn't looking at the whole country. And unfortunately, a lot of it had been done with these big asks, like $500 and up or PACs were formed and it was, you know, 2000 and up. And it just seemed like an incredibly exclusive way of fundraising to me because 
Bernie had shown that we could do it in a different way. And it was also so exclusionary. Like this was just about rich people then, rich people meeting the candidates, rich people deciding what policies they wanted to push forward when they met the candidates. And it just didn't seem at all democratic to me. It didn't seem like what a progressive group should be doing. So we changed the way fundraisers were happening. In these initial fundraisers, we decided there were going to be lower dollar amounts. And that was a problem because Traditionally, New York City, and as we eventually, I branched out to work in LA as well, because I work there, everybody had done these high-ass fundraisers. The candidates and the financial people all had specific ways of working, and this was the way I wanted to do it, which was raise the most money as fast as they can, go to big donors, go to the donors they had. So it took some work in telling them they could expand their networks. They would have to have different types of events that would be more inclusive, but it meant, sure all the events didn't raise as much as they had previously hoped. They would have to do some events that would raise 50,000, 25,000, but they would reach a larger swath of people that felt more invested. Right. The process of lowering the ask made it so you could educate more people, get more people involved and feel connected. I mean, that's a huge part of this, what's going on. I live in New York too, and I get super excited about some races where I have met the candidate or seen the candidate at a function and, you know, election night, I'm watching the returns in Iowa and I'm sending out like super excited emails to all my friends afterwards. You're part of it. Yes, exactly. But you don't have to feel like, okay, I gave them $2,800. So I'm part of it. Right. Some people give $50. But they should be just as much a part of it. That's for them. That 50 is as much money as for many people, 2,800. And that's an important thing to recognize. And the Democrats, I think, have left people out. And as a result, people don't want to vote, to be honest with you. And granted, I'm only working in places that are blue. They're progressive. They're liberal. They're used to being more involved. But I'm still bringing in people that didn't vote, that were apathetic, that felt things were working without them. So that gives you a sort of breadth of what was happening in 2017, which was an enormous learning curve for me, where I was just kind of like, wait, fundraisers are happening like this with only rich people in a room eating rimaki and <laughs> drinking champagne? Like, that's absurd. It's worse than the Republicans. <laughs> At least they're working with churches. It was a process throughout 2017 of like, we're going to transform this, but it's going to take some time and work and energy. And it, we also realized that if we were going to do that, we were also going to have to do a different type of event. It wasn't going to be the event at the rich person's house where, seriously, you literally have pigs in a blanket and <laughs> a bunch of people coming around with their doors. Maybe it meant more people in a room and going to Trader Joe's and getting cheese and bread. And that was okay. Like it didn't have to be about the setting and what you were serving. It could be about what was happening at the event. And that was not the way politicians had looked at it. They had also been kind of surprised when I said, you know, I want the candidate. Like, we're not going to have an event to raise money for you unless the candidate gets here. Like, it's just not going to work anymore where you have your surrogate, or it's just an event where people talk about the candidate or talk about New York City real estate while they put money in for somebody that they don't really know, because it keeps us at arm's length. Right, of course. But the beauty of what you're doing, what you started doing in 2017, focusing on most of them are not even Senate races, right? They were a lot of House races and maybe even down ballot races. I don't know. Some down ballot. I mean, largely it was House. It was a few Senate. It was governor races. And that was sort of our focus. There were groups like 
Future Now, and Center for Popular Democracy, which I started working with, which were working very effectively with a lot of these in Way to Win, a lot of these down-ballot races. So we were focusing on house races. And that was the other part of the learning curve is we were trying to figure out like where is our time and money best spent? And it suddenly became apparent that the house could be won, but there wasn't the energy being put into it. So at that time, I met Ethan Todris Whitehall, who had basically started out of his bedroom, swing left, and not even started. It was early 2017. And we met at Le Pen Quotidian in Brooklyn Heights, I remember. And he was just kind of working. There were three of them. They were convinced we could win the house. It was all just such early stages. And in fact, I remember we were having breakfast and it was a mutual friend who had introduced us. And she said, this might be the person that could help you kind of figure out the path through 2018 and winning the White House. He had done a lot of research on how the House could be won back. So it was fascinating. And he had the numbers to show like which states could actually win. But what was a funny little bit was that she had gotten to Anna Winter. He had been a writer in New York City previously, a freelance writer. And so he is notoriously sort of schleppy. And we were having breakfast and he said to me in his like ripped t-shirt, do you think this is okay to meet with Anna Winter? And I was like, you know what? We'll just swing around to a store across the street and we'll just get you a button down shirt. (laughs) And that was Ethan. The rest is history. She ended up raising millions of dollars for Swing Left. Oh, that's great. We won back the house. So he was where I was getting a lot of my data initially. They didn't have a lot of money. You know, Swing Left took a while to get traction. I kind of worked in conjunction with them on a number of races. And then this is kind of a quick overview of how 2017 sort of panned out, which was that I was working in New York City with a bunch of people, maybe 10 people who would co-host with me. And then I was working in LA with my friend, Christy Callahan, who had been a big democratic fundraiser in Hollywood, doing it in sort of a traditional way for years. And she was also kind of switching over, annoyed by how Hollywood had raised money, which was again, big asks, big parties, fancy houses, expensive food. So, you know, $5,000 went towards the food, which was another thing we got rid of. So, and we started to do fundraisers in LA and New York once a month. And we would find the candidates that made the most amount of sense. There were local candidates that we'd intersperse because we were focused on winning back, obviously, California. There were nine seats that were potentially flippable. And then there were a bunch of flippable seats in New York. And then we just sort of went with the data on which races were most flippable, which candidates made the most sense. You know, there were like 24 events we could do, thinking you do two a month in LA and New York. And we were able to do a fair amount of work and raise a fair amount of money just focusing on that. We also worked with a number of grassroots groups from sister district to flippable, swing left, indivisible. Oftentimes we would combine candidates and groups because sometimes we could get the group's money for their work on the ground that helped those particular candidates. That was sort of how we slowly moved into 2017. And then our events sort of took shape from there, which was at first we started to just bring candidates in and we would talk and people would feel they could air their grievances, air their unhappiness, air their concerns, and talk with you know politicians and candidates. We would start also bringing more politicians in because what we realized is that people really wanted to hear from a candidate who was running in a district, but they wanted to hear from a politician who was in DC and sort of what the lay of the land was there. So we kind of slowly formed this coalition with a number of politicians. Like I became close with Hakeem Jeffries and he graciously offered his time, crazy amounts of time. He would do every other month, he would do fundraisers to help out, kind of boost the candidate and to also offer his own expertise in answering questions in Washington because it was such a hunger for knowledge and what was going on. 
And then we expanded from there to, we wanted to really not only inform people and hopefully entertain them a little bit. We kind of started producing it almost because it was a lot of writers, showrunners. I mean, I worked with a lot of people in Hollywood and a lot of my friends and we were all creative people. So we basically began writing and producing these kind of events. So what does that mean exactly? So we eventually brought in people like Crooked Media, which is John Favreau. For people who don't know Pod Save America, right? John Lovett, Tommy Vitor, and they would host various events. So sometimes we would set up panels where, for example, we had John Favreau, John Lovett, Tommy Vitor, and Ted Liu, who is congressman from Beverly Hills. And we had a big event in LA where it was set up almost like a podcast. And they did the very sort of funny, informative half hour. And then they took questions. Garrick Garcetti showed up, like a number of politicians would also come in and out and then they could sort of join the conversation. So it became a big conversation, which was amazing. So it almost turned into a town halls and then people could really donate what they wanted. There was no pressure on donating. I told you know financial directors to lay off because there was traditionally a kind of endless following up of people. And it was like, you give what you can. We asked for money at the outset. Ticket prices were set at a variety of levels. So there were $50 tickets at everything for what we called young activists. And if indeed you really couldn't afford to pay, there were you know a bunch of tickets for free as well. We tried to do them in bigger spaces. Oftentimes free, we did the Boys and Girls Club, for example, in New York City for Doug Jones. My friend Christy Callahan can fit 150 in her backyard. You know, we did events that didn't have to be limited by virtue of the numbers. So the cost then could be reduced. So we kind of rejiggered events. And then we always had someone like Baratunde Thurston, who is a comedian. He was on The Daily Show. He does TED Talk. So he would do a couple events. We had a rotating list of people. So you guys are lucky because you have access to some really interesting, high-level people. So we could program these events in interesting ways. Joan Walsh, before she went to CNN, was one of our regular panelists, and she's amazing. She's a documentary filmmaker. She was able to really, we could talk to her about how we wanted to shape it, and then she could run from there because these people were not only entertaining and smart, but they had a lifetime of experience interviewing people. So they could interview the candidates and the politicians, and they could really steer the conversation. It was really interesting. It turned into events that people wanted to attend, not these kind of loathsome fundraisers. And I apologize for people who love fundraisers. <laughs> and it wasn't, you weren't coming for the food or the wine. The wine was shitty. The food wasn't great, but the conversation was good. Yep. So you're telling me you threw 24 events leading up to the midterms in 2018? Maybe 20, but yeah. I mean, that's a lot. That is a lot. Again, some were small, I should say. There were many that were like, you know, they were tiny that didn't raise money. And then there were, so it really ranged. And I should also say that what I had eventually is solid groups in both cities, in LA and New York. So I had a lot of help. A, B, the campaigns helped enormously. And then groups like Swing Left had, by that time, sort of by the end of 2017, had infrastructures where they had whole departments, two or three people that could help me plan events. So I was working full time, but I really did have their help. Right. So full disclosure to anybody who's listening that actually we have friends in common. I've certainly been on your email list, I think, since 2017. I apologize if there are too many lengthy emails. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I've been to quite a few of your events as well. But one thing I've always admired from you from afar 
because of all the emails is your tenacity. I mean, fundraising is not easy. Asking people to give money is not easy. And to an outsider, it seems like you just never get dispirited or intimidated about asking people to come to yet another event. How do you do it? I I don't really care in terms of (laughs) how much of a nudge I'm becoming. I also think, I mean, I spent years before I became a writer, I was a studio executive at like Sony, Paramount, Fox. And then I became a producer for many years and produced a number of movies. And I can tell you that (laughs) producing is an an uphill, pride-swallowing battle where all you do is nudge people for money. So I had a fair amount of... (laughs) experience doing this. And to me, it wasn't so much about fundraising because I asked for money in my letters, but largely it was about producing. It was about writing and producing. It took a lot of the skills that I had already honed from years of Hollywood work. Because that was the other thing is that these campaigns had these sort of form letters that they would send out and they were deadly. They were annoying and sometimes insulting and they asked for way too much money. And I sort of rewrote all the letters, which became a lot of work, except I eventually had a boilerplate that I could use. But I tried to not really spend my time asking for money, but rather telling people what the state of affairs was, why this person was good, why they were worth our time. And if they could give, give. And if they could learn more about this person, that would be great. And if they could you know, come to an event and meet them, that would be great. And if they could maybe write a letter or two, canvas, get out the vote, that would be great too. So it wasn't so much about raising money. The onus was on me really to get out there. And I didn't nudge people with follow-ups. At least I don't think so. You can tell me if you felt (laughs) harassed. And I really asked the campaigns to back off because I know that they can just deluge people with these asks. So it didn't really feel like fundraising to me. It felt like a community that I was trying to get activated. Right. It's awareness raising as much as fundraising. If you donated 10 or 2000, I didn't really care. It was all about being there, showing up and doing one little thing, maybe once a month or once only, if that's all you could do, getting out the vote, taking a few people to their polls, making a few calls, you know, it's bigger than fundraising. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. It became more about the process. Like, how do you get people out to vote? How do you get people to care more? How do you get people to think that, you know, these candidates aren't just another body in Washington, D.C. doing the same old, same old? So that was sort of my approach, if that makes sense. And it it sounds like you've had, I mean, your co-hosts have played an important role along the way. Absolutely. I mean, this is not something you can do, like, at your level. You you can't do it on your own. No. I know some of you are friends to start. Do you feel like these are people you can call on for various things at this point, or it's just people signing up and bringing in more bodies? Christy Callahan, who I work with in Los Angeles, we had known each other through circles of friends, but we weren't that close. And we really became, she's one of my closest friends and it only happened through this. And it's just, you see so much overlap suddenly. There's like new ways of connection. I mean, as you get older, it's harder to meet friends. It's just, you don't have the same ways of meeting of college. Or when I first came to Hollywood, there was a whole group of assistants and we had networking and there were ways to meet and that gets harder. Sure. I mean, when your kids are little, you mean school, but it gets harder and harder as your kids grow up and you're settled in your job. And it was a different way of meeting people and meeting like-minded people and finding that I learned so much from them and you could seek solace in them. But yes, it definitely 
a broad community. Even though your parties aren't the $5,000 a seat fundraisers. Uh, right. Not at all. Yes. Rowing parties still sounds fun and glamorous and schmoozy, but I imagine there's some tales from the trenches. Any disasters? I mean, I would love for people to hear that it can not go smoothly at times, but it still can be okay. Yes. It very much did not go smoothly a lot of the times. In fact, yeah, mostly everything, mostly every fundraiser had its issues, certainly leading up to it. I did an event in Brooklyn Heights with this lovely candidate, Aftab from Cincinnati, running for the house. And basically, I hadn't been told that the event space that I was using was right underneath the Manhattan Bridge. So basically, nobody could speak because I had Akeem Jeffries, Aftab there, because every time everybody tried to open their mouth, the train went by and all you'd hear were the sounds of trains. Another one of my fundraisers that was not the best, but you know, there was a lot of cheap wine. We had yeah. too much stuff there, so people drank heavily. What about any particular favorites that stick out or anything that was most gratifying to you? I did a really big event at Brooklyn Bowl with, I think, I don't know if you came to that one. I remember that one. Yeah, it was maybe 200 people, 250. It was great. We had a lot of free tickets, maybe... 75 free tickets. So we had a lot of people, huge age range. And we had four house seats that we were flipping. Anthony from DC, Antonio Delgado, Max Rose, Hakeem Jeffries came. It was a great event. A variety of politicians, a variety of candidates. Swing Left did it with us. So they helped out with the planning. People were able to bowl. It was really an amazing event. And people saw at the event when Swing Left was there, we had people sign up and we got over 400 people from Friends of Friends to volunteer in their swing districts, doing everything from driving people to the polls to calling, texting. It was great. It was right before the election. So it was, it felt very satisfying. And it sounds like that to you, a great event is something where you really get a lot of people engaged exactly. versus maybe not raise the most money you've ever raised or have the biggest names you've ever had, although you had big names there. It's about really having a wide variety of people turned on to stuff. It's also the takeaway. Like I invited, my kids were in high school at the time and they invited a bunch of their friends and then my niece and nephew were in college and they invited a bunch of their friends. So what was kind of amazing about it is having all these young people there and they were like, Kim Jeffries is so amazing. Antonio Delgado is so amazing. I want to work for him. I want." And it was the first time these people had A, met these candidates and B, been to any kind of political event. They had lived their lives pretty much like a lot of us had, which is going along and ignoring these things, assuming everything was getting taken care of. And they realized, no, maybe I could work for a candidate. Maybe I could help out somehow. So that was one of the kind of most amazing parts of it to me is opening some of these people's eyes. Who These kids have gone on to work for Max Rose and work for Katie Porter and work for different campaigns. And I don't know if they would have, if Hillary had won and things had gone along and all of us had been in the dark about things. No, I think it would have been really different. Quickly, obviously, fundraising is really different right now in the middle of this pandemic. How have you adjusted? I have started to do Zoom events that I think were you on my most recent yes, Zoom events. That, yeah. <laughs> that was it was a bit of an experiment, but I've having been on a million Zoom events. I mean, I've done events for Stacey Abrams recently and Revan Warnock and Cory Booker. And these Zoom events are largely 
kind of boring because nobody has adapted to the technology, which means that basically people are doing town halls or fireside chats or fundraising events where they just kind of talk to the camera. And sure, people can ask a question or two, but largely it's not a conversation because when you ask that question, you, your mic then goes mute and you can't really ask a follow-up question or have any kind of conversation about it. So I started to think about how we could do events differently. And I was talking to different people like Simananda, who is the CEO of the DNC, and because they're doing a lot of events with Senate candidates and Joe Biden. And so I realized that maybe if we can incorporate something that makes the candidates seem more human, makes politicians seem more human, and engages people again in ways we did IRL in real life, but virtually, that that might work. And I tried it sort of a little bit with a group called Vote Mama. I don't know if you were on that, which is something that Luba Getring Shirley, who ran for Congress in 2018, came close but didn't flip the seat. Elizabeth Warren is her mentor. She started this group that helps female candidates with young children. They basically help giving them the resources they need with their kids. And so we did an event with Sarah Riggs and Miko running for Senate in Georgia and MJ Hager running for Senate in Texas. And basically I kind of helped write and program it in that there was kind of a little more conversation in the beginning. It was free flowing and people could ask some questions and Luba spoke with the two of them and their kids were around and it just humanized them in ways. And I watched people react to it and they really enjoyed it. And then both of them talked and they talked about how hard it was during the pandemic and people got to ask questions and ask follow-up questions and we kept their mics on a little longer. And so I saw that people stayed on. The other thing is that you see when you're doing these Zoom events, you see actually how many people leave the event, right? You go from 150 to 100 to 75, and then there's like 25 people left at the very end. You're like, "Uh uh-oh. So that was a very successful event. People ended up donating to both of those candidates afterwards. It was a free event because they didn't know them. And I realized, okay, you know, we just have to make these events much more conversational. It suddenly was back to, you're a wallet, we want your money, and we don't want to hear from you. So I planned an event with Max Rose, who is New York 11, which is Staten Island. He's in a tough race because he's got a well-funded RNC candidate. And Katie Porter, who's in Orange County, flipped his Orange County seat. Her race is less tough, but they both still need money. And with the pandemic, didn't have a lot. And Hakeem Jeffries, again, who agrees to do every fundraiser I ask, helped moderate it. And I was like, you know, we're going to shake this up a bit because everybody is bored with their stump speeches, which is sort of what every candidate wants to give. And a you know, state of play in Washington, which is what Hakeem needs to give, which is disastrous. And I wanted to also give people a little bit of hope and a little bit of good news. So I've been playing Zoom games with family and friends. So I did a lot of Zoom games. and I wrote a bunch of them and had to talk to the candidates about which they were happy to do. And we came up with three or four Zoom games that they liked and that weren't flagged by their communications teams. And it was just kind of a trial and error experiment. And I think it worked pretty well. I mean, I was nervous. I had to moderate it, but people, 125 people started on it. 120 people finished on it. We raised, I think like 50,000. We raised a lot more money than we had on an online event. And I think most importantly, people felt optimistic afterwards. They were given some sense of hope in a time that's pretty dark. And that was sort of my goal. 
Yeah, it was fun and it was really refreshing to just see these politicians goof off and be themselves because like you said, they're always going to go back to their talking points whenever they can and that just can get boring on a Zoom call. So I thought it was really fun and funny. Oh, good. So that's, yeah, so that sort of snowballed. Like Cory Booker's campaign called after that and asked if I could program one of their events. So I think everybody's now sort of thinking about Connor Lamb's office call. So I've had a lot of people calling and saying, can you write some fun sort of Zoom games we could play? So we'll see. It, it also could, that could get old quickly. So I'm going to see how I can mix that up. So that's kind of what has happened. And speaking of what you're doing now, I mean, you talked a lot about the lead up to 2018 and, and 2018 was very uniting because you know, it was pretty obvious that we weren't going to be able to flip the Senate, but the House was within reach. It was a possibility. And so a lot of people were very, very focused on those races. Now there's so much to focus on. What's the priority right now? I think, well, luckily, there's a lot of groups working with state houses, which is really important. We have to keep our eyes on that because we can lose focus and just focus on federal, which is bad because you really need all of that to work in conjunction because it's, you know, it's like the legs of the table, right? If that collapses, you're in trouble. And we need to kind of keep propping things up from state levels. I feel like I can do a little bit of that, but those groups are doing it really well. So if people look at Center for Popular and Democracy, way to win and give to those groups. I feel like that's a, that's one thing that I can kind of direct people because that's another service that I'll often provide, which is kind of philanthropic services. Like where can your money best go? I don't think it's best for me to focus on the state races because I think that those people like Center for Popular Democracy, they are the largest grassroots group. So if I do something, I'll do it with them. But I think those races are incredibly important and I'll often funnel people to their sort of sites or to their executive directors and things like that, or I'll work with them when doing those events. In answer to your question, I think the state races are important, but I like to work with those groups. So my efforts in terms of doing what I do in New York and LA, which is I'm going to continue through 2020 to do at least two events a month, whether it kills me or not, and it might. And those I think are going to largely be focused on keeping house seats because it's important. And I think we've lost a little bit of focus on that. And there are certain races like Connor Lamb, which is, he's from Pittsburgh, which is where I grew up. And that unfortunately has a lot of Trumpers, which inexplicably still are behind him. Max Rose, there are, you know, Abby Finkenauer, there are a lot of those seats that I worked hard to win over that they're out of money and they need our help. I'm going to focus on those seats and I'm going to focus on Senate because I do think the Senate is within reach and the data that I've seen proves that there are certain seats like Mark Kelly and certain candidates like Sarah Gideon that can flip Cory Gardner, George Hickenlooper, Steve Bullock in Montana that can flip those seats. I think they're winnable. And I think that Many of those seats need money, unfortunately, and they need time and they need energy. They need people to call. They have a lot of people that don't even know when they're voting, how they're voting, absentee ballots. They need guidance. They need phone calls. They need texts. I feel like it's winnable, but I feel like it's going to take an effort. I love that you do high to low asks that you do no asks sometimes that you're just trying to spread the word. You're trying to get people activated. What tips would you give someone listening to this who is inspired to raise money for Democrats, but doesn't have your connections, might feel intimidated about asking people for money? Like what are some basic tips for doing this kind of thing? You can start super small with giving circles, which I know you're familiar with, which you can find 
online. You don't have any connections. Actually, you can go to Future Now. You can go to Center for Popular Democracy and you can just pick what you want and you can tell your friends to get involved. You can hold your own Zoom event and you can have a conversation where you discuss what it is you're raising money for. And I don't know, you raise a thousand dollars. Everybody gives five, 10. The amount doesn't matter. It's more about, I mean, sometimes those small dollar amounts, a thousand dollars, if it goes towards a state race, that's meaningful. That sometimes can mean the difference between winning and losing. And largely on a lot of these websites, you can find out information that you need to have a small fundraiser yourself. And you'd be surprised if you call campaigns, you'd be surprised at how incredibly gracious they are, how incredibly willing somebody would be from the campaign. Maybe, sure, you might not get the candidate, but you could get a surrogate, which could mean maybe the campaign director, the finance director. And these people are unbelievably well-informed. They're smart, they're funny, and you could do a Zoom call with them, you know? I mean, I would have previously said you could invite them into your home, but you can't do that. But certainly if you're in a city that has a city council election, a state legislator race, even a governor's race, you would be surprised by just calling the office how willing they'd be to help. You don't need connections in many of these cases. And then you can also pick a grassroots group that you find interesting. I mean, I keep mentioning Center for Popular Democracy and Swing Left just because I'm on their board, but you can certainly go to their websites and find out the groups that are affiliated with them locally and decide to do something for like something like New Virginia Majority, which is part of Swing Left Circle, which is the group that basically helped the Virginia state legislator be won back, which has made enormous strides in Virginia. And something, a group like that is unbelievably important to somebody who lives in Virginia, and they will be willing to help you plan a fundraiser or plan a cultivation event. Don't even start with a fundraiser if you feel like you don't want to ask people for money, because sometimes that is a hard way to start. So maybe just get people together and inform them, tell them what's happening, tell them what this group in your community is doing, see how you can get involved. And again, it can be minimal. And I think you have to, people have to stress that because a lot of times people assume, oh my God, they're asking me to write letters four times a week. I can't do that. I have a job. I have a kid. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm now homeschooling my children. You know, it's too much. And I get that. Those are really great tips. Thank you so much, Stacy. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. This was great. It helped me sort of solidify what it is I'm doing. <laughs> well, I'm glad it helped you too. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.